.NET Rocks episode 644 with guest Kent Allstad. Recorded live Tuesday, February 22nd, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. This podcast is brought to you by Microsoft Canada and the Ignite Your Coding podcast series on web development. Finding the time to keep your skills current can be a challenge, especially in the world of web development. That's why the folks at Microsoft Canada felt it was a good idea to connect you with industry experts to discuss topics on web development. As part of this four-part series known as Ignite Your Coding, you'll hear about HTML5, CSS, JavaScript, and Microsoft's work around interoperability through web standards. For more information about this episode, as well as other episodes of the Ignite Your Coding podcast series, check out msdn.microsoft.ca slash ignite. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. Hey, man. Hey, buddy. How are you? I'm pretty good. Hey, how do you recognize a field service engineer on the side of the road with a flat tire? How? He's changing each tire to see which one is flat. <laughs> and how do you recognize a field service engineer on the side of the road who's run out of gas? How? He's changing each tire to see which one is flat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. It's going to be that kind of day, huh? I think so. All right. Better No Framework coming at you. And this is, of course, a little segment I do where I shine a little light on a piece of the .NET framework or related technology in hopes that through osmosis, it'll come to you in your sleep and you'll figure it out. So uh, I mentioned a couple shows back that um, doing a full trusted Silverlight application um, you you really want to get a code certificate so it proves to the client that you are who you say you are. It gives you some accountability, right? Right. So, you know, there's this whole great feature of checking for new versions of a Silverlight application and downloading a new version and automatically working, right? Yep. Here's the thing. It turns out that if you have a full trust out-of-browser application requiring that extra trust, that ain't going to work. Really? Unless you have a code certificate. Ah, of course. If you have a code certificate, you can do it, but otherwise, you're out of luck. Yep. And I'm talking about the check and download update async uh, method on the application. And then you can handle an event, uh, check and download update completed, and then it passes in an argument E, and update available is a Boolean that shows you whether an update's available. And you can say, uh, an update has been downloaded. All you got to do is restart the application. So that's it's a nice little feature, but it isn't going to work in a full trust application unless you have uh, a code certificate. So yeah, another yeah. another reason why you should get your zap signed. And didn't you find someplace selling certs for $49? Yes, that's uh, startssl.com. Okay, excellent. That's it. And, you know, you can scan your passport or your driver's license or both and send them to them, and they they can use that as a form of personal identification. So Take it pretty, from there. Pretty easy to get started. 
Richard, who's talking to us? Ah, Glenn Howe. So I'm sure we've talked to him before, but maybe not. Talking about show 621. Dear Carl and Richard, I've been stewing over your recent show about using Monomac to do application development on OSX, and recently one of our junior engineers has gone through the exercise of creating a utility application using this framework. Mono does work in the sense of creating an application which uses much of the same code on Windows and the Mac. That's all well and good, but about all we could ask for a small, simple project. However, I have been shocked and disheartened to find that Mono in the Mono Mac apparently stands for Monoculture. I would prefer to do all my Mac-specific code in Objective-C, where I can use the Cocoa framework in a natural, lightweight, dynamic fashion, and call through to C-sharp code containing shared models and business logic, Monomac apparently has no capacity for mixing and matching languages for the task at hand. A properly factored application could easily be 90% or more C-sharp, but when I asked the junior engineer why every little bit of his project was in C-sharp, even when subclassing various Cocoa classes, he informed me that there was no way to do it otherwise and that he had researched the issue thoroughly. I had come away from your show thinking that it would just be an odd emphasis on Miguel's part for not having to write Objective-C, but it would be more accurate to say that you cannot use Objective-C in any non-hacky way. As a longtime cross-platform developer who is mainly a Mac guy, I find this borderline insanity. To avoid learning a language which is completely documented in a 140-page ebook, one is supposed to substitute learning the huge OSX development SDK using a language for which it was not intended, and for which the vast majority of online help and documentation is in a different form. C-sharp may be a fine language and beloved by its practitioners, but it is not so valuable a tool that it should be used for all tasks. No language is. Anyway, thanks again for the great podcast. And hey, please try to bulk up on mobile development topics. Glenn House. Wow, that was a mouthful. It was a mouthful, but he made a very interesting point. And Miguel never said this outright, that you know, it's not only that you didn't have to develop an Objective-C, but that you simply couldn't. Yeah. So, uh, but I would also, you know, defend Miguel to the sense that this is the first version of Monomac. So who knows where this is going to go? And I think his point's well taken. There's going to be places where Objective-C makes sense. And can't we all just get along? Yeah. Really? 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 So, Glenn, I'm going to send you a mug. And if you've got a comment, a question, a concern about a show, just send us an email at .net rocks at franklins.net or leave a comment on our fancy new website through Facebook, Twitter, any way you want to do it, you can put comments in about our shows and we'll respond to those and send mugs to those as well. Hey, Richard, this is uh, another one of our uh, Ignite Your Coding series. Yes, you're right. This is number two. Right. And this has been sponsored by Microsoft Canada. And it's all about uh, looking forward to the future of web development. Absolutely. Everything the web developer needs to know coming up. Oh, and hey, by the way, before we get started... Telerik is running some events in Australia on March 15th, coming right around the corner here. So if you're interested in topics like Agile development, MVC, Silverlight, Agile testing, and all that, you should check them out. They're flying in Stephen Forte, Joel Semeniuk, and have also brought in local Aussie speakers like Malcolm Sheridan and Jordan Knight. These are by-invite events only. You can sign up at Telerik.com slash Australia, and they'll let you know when and where the events are. Our guest today is uh, Kent Alstad. Kent has been on the show many times, also uh, uh, Richard's business partner. He is a principal and contributing author on all of Strange Loop's pending patents. Uh, 
Before helping create Strange Loop, he served as CTO at Iron Point Technology. Kent also founded Eclipse Software, a Microsoft certified solution provider that he sold to Discovery Software in 2001. In more than 20 years of professional development experience, Kent has served as architect and lead developer for successful production solutions with the Active Network, ADP, Lucent, Microsoft, and NCS. PortView, an application Kent architected for the Port of Vancouver, was honored as Best Administrative System at the 1996 Windows World Open Competition. Kent holds a Bachelor of Science in Psychology from the University of Calgary. Isn't it always true that some of the best programmers have degrees in things other than programming? Isn't that weird? I, I, I'm actually, I, I, at first I, I used to hide that, but now... Like I, I really am proud to to like it's actually communication on a team that has more to do with successful projects actually than than crafty computer science much of the time. Yeah, that that you know if you're the head down programmer kind of guy who is given a task and needs to complete it the most efficient way, a CS degree is probably going to help you. But doing what you do, communication is it. I I, I actually maintain that those guys who are putting their heads down, if they would talk to their buddies or solve it together, most of the time the, the solution would come faster. The harder the problem, the better that works. Huh. Like I, I only work most of the time on problems which like just, you know, the, there's a good chance you're not going to solve them. <laughs> and I find the sooner I can give them to the team, the sooner we all work on them and they're our problem, the sooner would they get solved or there's an option. Isn't that I cool? Mean, I'd like to believe that there was these eureka experiences that individuals have, but that sometimes the discussion sometimes feeds that, you know? Yeah. At any rate, that was uh, interesting. But like 1996, wow, was I ever feeling old <laughs> as I heard that bio? <laughs> Holy mackerel. Uh, I, wrote a, I, I wrote a piece just recently talking about 1996 from a, from a mobile communications perspective. And of course, that's how you and I met, Kent. Because I yep. had a Nokia cell phone back then when nobody else did, and uh, your wife was pregnant with your daughter. Yeah, we were doing dev days. That was fun. Yeah, that was a long time ago. So you're doing a lot of JavaScript these days, Mister Mister Allstad. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I fell in love with JavaScript. I was at a, a company meeting the other day, and they they uh, they asked everybody around the table to tell something new about themselves, and I. And I said that I'd fallen in love with JavaScript, which I'm not sure if that's something I should be saying out loud a lot. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say I've been really fascinated with it, and I'm, I'm building building libraries for the most part, but learning to to accelerate and make other people's JavaScript run faster is a lot of the focus, which means just understanding the the runtime environment. Uh, and it's just a fabulous little language. I, I'm, I'm just, uh, I can't say enough. Because it seems like most folks ha live in very much a love-hate state with JavaScript. Like, it's a necessary evil. Um, yeah, I suppose. I suppose. I, I, I guess I'm kind of used to, there's trade-offs in almost every problem that you sure. solve. And so I, I, I'm pretty happy with the trade-offs of JavaScript, to be honest with you. Like, it's a pretty nice language. It's not perfect, but nice. Are we in a particularly good place with JavaScript right now? Like, it just seems like things are working better. Well, the new browsers run it so much faster that it's a very legitimate language. 
Huh. Right? Like, look at oh, some geez, of the JavaScript demos in IE9. I was just going to say, IE9's burning. Yeah. Yeah, and the V8 stuff in Chrome, and, and IE9 is just shattering speed in terms of graphics and, and JavaScript especially. But, I mean, it's basically compiled the you know, just like any other language at that stage. So it's one of the things is where it used to be much more expensive to do more complex programs. It's not. It's a viable language. And there's a, there's a, a, a really solid distribution platform in the Internet and the World Wide Web, right, and, and browsers. So I think that's, that's uh, a plus that can't be overlooked, like we've been trying to get code onto desktops for a long time. When you talked about the trade-offs of JavaScript, are you talking mostly about um, debugging and you know not having a managed platform and all that kind of stuff? What, what exactly are you talking about in terms of the yeah, downside? Yeah, well, in terms of a language, I mean, I certainly prefer C-sharp in terms of its structure, uh, from, you know, from its interface used to, I mean, you can just, it's, it's more strongly typed and I can be more of an object-oriented programmer. So from that perspective, some people will have uh, arguments that say it's, it's, you know, it's not as good. But I find it it's adequate. I'm able to, all the things that I'm, the, you know, the, the things that I really need to express, the abstract patterns, I'm able to. So I, it may be a little bit laborious there, but it's fine. It's much harder to debug, mostly because it's always minified, and your errors are happening in browsers, and you end up, like, I debug the problems that I see in all these different browsers. Yeah. Right? My, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with how to debug in Chrome or in, in IE9, IE7, IE8, uh, you know, in Quirks mode, in, in, you know, Firefox, Firebug. Like, I have to, you have to be debugging and kind of familiar with all those environments. And, and then you need to plan in your deployment some way to see the unminified code if you can't reproduce a bug. You know, if there's those, it's the deployment model there is, it's more, complicated yeah you know and and debugging is more complicated largely because you've got this obfuscated code in the field for the most part that you need some way of unwinding once you can't repro the problem and we all know that bugs that are reproable (laughs) those are the easy ones it's when they come to you and they just can't figure out what's going on that you want, you know, all the the visibility. Are you doing more in JavaScript now than you ever thought you would? I mean, because you have uh, stuff like the IE9 JavaScript compiler, things that you might have chosen um, to do on the back end or just chosen maybe a Silverlight app or something like that, you're now uh, finding that JavaScript is the way to go? Um, I I don't mean everything. I, I mean some, you know, more than you thought. I guess I'm finding that we're taking a different approach where before we looked at the server side much more often for the solution, we're almost always considering, could we solve this on the client? Like we're, I I wouldn't say we're necessarily always choosing JavaScript. Like sometimes it just doesn't make sense to do things on the client and, and you shouldn't. Like, so it's not, it's not one stop, you know, one size fits all for sure. Mm. But almost I think if anything's changed for me in the last seven or eight months, it's I'm always looking, could we do this from a client-side perspective? Sometimes the client has the best purview of what's really going on. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like the context, um, cookies work different. You can't bank on them in one situation because they've 
turn them off or they're using some weird browser version or something, right? right? And you're able to write your JavaScript from the perspective of what's actually going on in the context for the user, not what you think is going or you're setting up to go on, which you have to do at the server. So there is a place for that type of perspective and that type of coding. So I guess in terms of application development, I'm not really making those decisions. Like I'm normally accelerating people's applications that are already developed, so I'm looking at where's the best place to accelerate them, with client-side code or with server-side code. And I'm looking more to client-side. I'm surprised at how often that is a better solution now. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, well, it, it, it makes sense, of course, because of the technology as well. Um, JavaScript has come a long way since Netscape. Yeah, for sure. You know, it, I, I, it's really a full-featured language. And especially now coupled with CSS3, I think that um, we're going to see, well, I, I mean, there, you're now able to create a pretty rich user experience um, that is pretty ubiquitous on the web. And I, so I'm pretty excited about that. You know, and I guess that's actually really been surprising to me, uh, where I thought it wasn't possible. I'm really finding it is. Well, and that's always been the complaint, is that, that JavaScript was so asymmetrical between the browsers that unless everybody was running the same browser, you couldn't write any really sophisticated code that worked anywhere else. So although I don't think it's easy, it's possible. And, you know, jQuery-like libraries you know, nice, robust Ajax libraries, good client-side libraries that handle that for you are, are you know, they're, they're more prevalent and it, it making it much more possible. So there's not only at, at the metal I'm seeing it's possible, and I'm also seeing that the libraries that are getting adopted are much more robust and they do a great job. And really, so, for a mortal web developer, stick to jQuery? Yeah, because yeah, yeah, I, I'm not able to do that for in, in in my line of work, but I can tell you that that the jQuery for the most part is very well written and like it, you know, there's a reason they have to do things the way they do, um, and you wouldn't want to have to relive those lessons. Yeah, let, let let them absorb the pain. You know, that that would be it is very challenging to make that code work in all the different browsers in a consistent way. And that's a, you know that's a very valuable asset they provide. But does that mean that inside of jQuery there's a lot of if IE9, if Chrome kind of code? Oh, just weird stuff. Like, um, we're looking to catch the on-DOM content loaded event, which is available in Firefox and uh, in WebKit, but in, because we want to know when things start to render. That's really important to us. When does the user start to see what, uh, you know, the web page taking place? Right. We're trying to grab that for analytics so that we can understand, you know, how our acceleration is doing. But in IE, that's not available in IE8. So, you know, we look at what jQuery does to try to figure that out because they want to fire scripts and let, you know, let people at the very, you know, as the DOM is becoming ready, I, I want to be able to run some, um, maybe a, a display something you want your you want a, an event to fire for your program logic they uh, they try to scroll the viewport and the over and over again in a timeout callback and it's huh. that timeout callback and the moment it scrolls only in IE then they consider the dom ready <laughs> that's crazy what, what, a, fire it, what right? a wacky way to figure that out 
but that you know that's the type of thing that you're. I, I, I mean, and that if, you know the, somebody might think of a better way to do it tomorrow, and you'll see that code change. Right. Um, but meantime, for the regular developer, I just check to see when I, I could basically hook an event to when the DOM begins to render. Right. Yeah. Which which at the jQuery level is a nice you know that's a nice cross platform uh, way to insulate your code and just move on with your business problem. But below the surface, I mean, that is going on, and, and but that's getting, you know, less and less. As the, the browsers are getting, I, I feel more compatible. I mean, the problems that we have running cross-platform JavaScript between Chrome uh, nine and ten and IE nine are much less. And that kind of problem, Kent, sounds to me like the developer didn't have the right hook or the right tool, or the right didn't have the right knowledge of. Or even you didn't. There wasn't a hook exposed at the right time, so that was the closest thing to yeah, it. Yeah, that's know? really what it comes down to. You're trying to build for a cross-platform library that provides a you know consistent uh, programming experience across the browsers, and you know there's holes, and you have to come up with you know innovative solutions on those browsers to make that work. So there's a lot of hacking, you know. Yeah. So let's try this. Let's try that. The crazy stuff sometimes works, right? But I like the idea that jQuery absorbs those hacks so you don't have to write them. Well, I, and I don't want to say that jQuery is the only library that does this. I mean, I, I, I just follow a million or lots of, of, you know, different blogs where people are constantly discovering little, you know, it's, it's everybody is contributing to all those projects. And I see that, you know, for the most part, um, it's not just the people in jQuery that are coming up with them. Um, I feel like it's just across the industry. People are there's a lot of good sharing that's going on in JavaScript world. I find. So we're we're in a space now where just in general the JavaScript is advancing. I think so. I think it's you know especially with a lot of the AJAX development being more of a uh, you know a standard platform. I think that JavaScript is becoming one of the most used language. I would say it's on the increase. Sure. I I would think. I haven't looked at the statistics, but it sure feels that way in our business. Hmm. We, I mean, we see a lot of large websites, a lot of high-volume websites, and certainly if you were to look on the resumes of the people building those sites uh, where JavaScript, where, where your server-side language may be, have been more prevalent in the past, I think you're seeing JavaScript you know, rise to the forefront if you don't understand uh, how develop in JavaScript or how your server-side code is going to be used or basically be able to follow it through the whole system, you're at a pretty severe handicap. Yeah. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik JustCode. If you're like me, you're probably using some productivity add-on in Visual Studio to check, refactor, and test your code. But how would you like to get a complete list of your solution's errors on the fly as you type, and not just for the opened files? The new kit on the block, JustCode, does just that for all supported .NET languages as well as JavaScript. It's like having a compiler running all the time, only that JustCode is faster and requires less CPU time. One area where JustCode is definitely better is performance. The tool provides the fastest code analysis and better performance without slowing down Visual Studio. Another reason to try it is JavaScript support. It'll help you read, navigate, and refactor your JavaScript code better than you've ever imagined. Learn more about the features JustCode offers 
and download a trial at Telerik.com slash JustCode. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Kent, do you think, um, obviously you probably do, but you've thought about the future of JavaScript. Obviously, it's not a fad, you know, here to stay. And um, probably going to get more and more sophisticated and allow us to do more and more as time goes on. It, how does the landscape change with HTML5 and JavaScript? Hmm. I would say that it kind of opens more doors. So we, to me, there's less hacking that has to go on, uh, and you're allowed, you're able to do things more dynamically. So where before we had to build combinations of um, AJAX applications that fetched uh, maybe sprite compositions or things, you know, that pieces of an application. Now with uh, with CSS and JavaScript and the DOM, you're able to do a lot of that just purely dynamically the way you would as a games programmer or something on a desktop, right? You don't have to, it's not this, this heavy-duty interaction where a lot of your stuff is pre-calculated by the server and sent and your, the interaction is more complicated. Now you're able to have a server be more purely feeding you the data and the actual client can render and run all the program logic that you want which I think leads to, uh, uh, you know, a, a, better, a better architecture where, you know, the, the, the model view controller is more complete. The, the, the viewer can be more encapsulated on the browser. Um, so I guess I, what, what I'm seeing is it's opening the doors for more client-side logic in a sense and, and, a, and a more robust viewer. That's where, where I see it being used right now. I don't see HTML5 being used heavily in my mind right now. Like when I look at new, new, new CSS classes or new, you know people using web sockets or yeah. I, I just like I have not come across one application that is using web sockets. Yeah. So what about the canvas and video and and all that stuff? Do you see that as really where the the pizzazz of HTML5 is? And does JavaScript play a prevalent role? In using it, yes, yes, that's really what I'm getting at. Is now that we have the ability to manipulate those items so efficiently, and the, and that the JavaScript uh, language itself is fast for manipulating them, it you know we c- we can build more on the client side. We can push the viewer logic to the viewer. So in the model viewer controller paradigm, I'm talking. So um, yeah, I'm excited by the UI sides of it. I do think that you know, not all of it has been adopted, and there's still a lot of exploring to do on the network side, which is, like I mentioned, WebSockets. I'm particularly interested in WebSockets. So um, the fact that I don't see it that much, and it, you know, I, I'm anticipating more growth that way. I'm hoping for. I'm hoping to find a crafty way to use them that I can find effective, let's put it that way. But I just don't see that side of it taking off as much as the UI side. Hey, Ken, when you're looking at, at JavaScript, do you get a sense of, are there particular techniques that create more performance? Are there faster executing? Um, it's not so much that you look for faster execution as you want to take the loading of the, the loading of the JavaScript is the major problem. When mm. it's loaded, and that's the main thing, is to look at 
Um, when am I loading my JavaScript libraries uh, in terms of your page rendering? Um, and to try to defer that. Like you don't, the, the fact is that large JavaScript libraries take time to download. Right. And the tendency and, is to stick them in the head. Yes, because the rest of your page uses them. Right. And the job of figuring out how to split them is not trivial. There's tools that can help you with that. Right. Closure, the closure compiler, I, I look at that a lot. Um, when you're looking at accelerating or making JavaScript faster, I rely on the, in terms of execution speed, by far the browsers themselves have helped us the most. If right. you're to look at the same function, however poorly written, running IE9 versus IE8, you'll see a dramatic difference. <laughs> right? So then the question is, how do I get my large blob of JavaScript to the browser without affecting my user experience or it, with the least impact on it? And how large, when we're saying large, what's big? Oh, between, well, when you look at a, well, a whole library, if I was to look at, uh, you know, there's apps that have megabytes of JavaScript, you know, Holy four cow. and five megabytes of JavaScript by the time their whole library is loaded and they're operational and, you know, in the five, fifth or, you know, sixth page of a, of a, of a flow. So that's large. That's um, terrifying. You know, yeah. Yikes. I was thinking you were going to say like 100K is big. You <laughs> went straight to megabytes. I'm terrified. Oh, no, like you can, it's, imagine that if somebody doesn't minify their JavaScript, right. you know, having a 200K JavaScript library is not unheard of. I, what I, was, I was looking at a comparison of jQuery and various minifications. And so what jQuery is 158K before being minified. And it minifies in the best case down to like 60 some. So, 60K. You know, it's K. So imagine that, you know, you're looking at, you know, yeah, you, you, can, you can have, <laughs> sadly, I see a lot of JavaScript being, like I can see 30 and 40 JavaScript being, files being loaded on a complex homepage of it, like a big website. And you know, with an average size between, you know, 20 and 200K. And the question is, when do you load them? Because you can't load all those before, you know, like if you load all those in the head, before anything starts, you're going to get a, you know, a blinding flash of a web page. <laughs> a whole lot of blank page there. Yeah, a whole lot of blank page. Well, you're blocked waiting for the JavaScript to get into the DOM. And most of that isn't, you know, uh, uh, compiling the JavaScript or, you know, uh, you know, parsing the DOM, nothing. It's just waiting for the JavaScript to come from the server. Hmm. And for those who've never dealt with minification, what is it and how do I get some? Well, you, sh you search for JavaScript and CSS minification on Google and you see that, you know, the top, the top minifiers are uh, Microsoft Ajax, uh, minifier, there's a uh, YUI compressor, and there's a Google uh, closure compiler. Hmm. Those are the three main ones. And what they do is they take your JavaScript um, and they take out all the white space. They, they basically pull out every trick in the book to make it as few characters as possible. Why don't they just call it compressing? Um, because you normally apply uh, a zip compression after you minify. Ah, oh, okay. So it's a different thing. So compression, which is a much simpler algorithm, actually does normally does more for you. Right. Uh, so minifying is it's still readable. It's just 
it, it you can still read it. It's not like encrypted or anything. Whereas when you compress, uh, it's a big block of text that yeah. I mean, I to read it, I have to beautify it first. Beautify <laughs> and beautify. <laughs> so there's a, there's a way that you can you know if you look under beautifying. You'll find the same you know, JavaScript. You'll find that you can take a block of minified JavaScript, paste it into a, a you know a text box on a site, and have it beautify. And you'll kind of it, it's you know all the variables have you know names like A and classes have you know B. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's not simple to understand, um, but it makes the JavaScript smaller. And the idea is that it it, it should not change the execution of it at all. Right. Right. But and this is almost it's obfuscating as well, right? Well, the yes, yeah, it is. In you, know, you can't get away from the fact that it's obfuscating. I mean, in, in my view, I I sometimes have to debug minified code, and it's not very fun. Yeah, I, mean, I bet. And well, then, like you said, you beautify it. Yeah, and and well, sometimes <laughs> when you got it in the debugger, you don't have that chance, though, right? Can you right. smartify it? That's my problem. Can you smartify it? <laughs> um, I always have make dumbified JavaScript. I don't know about you, Richard. <laughs> I could really use a smartifier. But it, well, it, it, this, doesn't this language remind you of the early days of .NET, where we had obfuscation, you were, and then you were decompiling IL and trying to understand it? Like it's very similar. Yeah, yeah. The the only reason you have to do it is if you're debugging in the field and your problem happens in the field and you can't reproduce it in your local environment, you sometimes are forced to kind of do your forensic investigation in that mode. I mean, that that's I build ways to you know get to if it's my code, I want to be able to get to the unminified version so I don't suffer through that with some you know uh, I plan to be able to do that prior to shipping. Um, Unfortunately, sometimes you're just looking at other people's code, trying to figure out why it's throwing an error and it's not even making it to your code. Or you know, like yeah, there's, a, there's, it's, it's pretty simple stuff. But, but the the fact is that you gain so much from minification. I mean, I also use minifiers as linters as well because I mean, JavaScript is so loosely typed that you can ship bad code so easily. The compilers, you know, you, you need to. You need to pre-process it with something that's going to give you reasonable error messages. So uh, for me, I use the closure compiler um, cranked up to um, ad- with advanced optimizations on when I comp- you know, when I build my code in Visual Studio, and that produces errors for me in my JavaScript that says, you know, if I just make a, a dumb mistake that on a code path that doesn't run a lot, I don't actually use that code. I just use the output of the compiler. So you turn it up to 11, is what you're saying? I turn it up to 11 and see what it reports. And then everything <laughs> it reports, any warning, anything, I investigate the root cause of, and generally it's right. I've done something wrong. Yeah. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com.
And so I want to hear some Kent Alstad stories from the field, you know, um, things that you've done in JavaScript that after you said, what a good boy am I, or wow, that was cool, or I couldn't, I can't believe that I figured that out, or, or you know, something that surprised you. Oh, it's all just like totally bizarre details. Um, what did I learn? I learned the other day that if you're trying to write uh, unobtrusive JavaScript code that hooks events, and you need to run those events in order mm. that you cannot just assign or override the on load or uh, you know um, on DOM ready event with, and you know assign it to your function. And normally you do this this trick where you say, well, if it's assigned to something else before, set up an old function, put, put and and inside of the new function I'm going to assign, I'm going to first call my function, then call the old load, mm. which is you know kind of a standard technique. And I found that in some JavaScript. Like with some clients, there it, it, with that just was a non-starter. It did not work, and I had to just attach events and try. And, and it, where originally I wanted to control the behavior and the order more, I found that that was just too that was too invasive. And mm. and some people counted on um, how they were attaching their event, and the idea that you Shanghai the the you know on load event or any other event was just a non-starter. So. And that took a long time to understand, honestly. And it's not like, can you override the event like you do in, well, in a C Sharp or VBNet? Uh, well, you can attach to it, and the, the browser itself will just call the, everybody who's attached in order, a lot oh, like you would in a regular environment. But in that case, you can't really control the order, especially between different browsers. So it's not like you can hook it before and then call it. That's right, because somebody else might have done the same thing, essentially. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Right, like, it depends on, you know, imagine you're doing with all these mashups and all this third-party content on your site, um, and you're incorporating part of other people's JavaScript libraries for trackers and things like that, and they can all, you know, any one of them can has has a library that can... Can just say on load equals my function. It's the it's the loading windows problem, right? Where yeah. your CPU goes nuts for about five minutes while everything and their brother phones home and tries to get you the latest versions of their, you know, taskbar tools and crap that you don't need, and everything loads up at the same time. That's that problem. Yeah, and and that's caused by not being able to control event handling. Yeah, quite the way you would like. Um, but there, so once I decided that I just wanted to control the order of the events that I knew about in my little world, yeah, and just attach to the, you know, the events that I was interested in with um, attach event, that uh, that solved my problem, which I thought was, you know, so that was a maybe that's obvious to some people. I banged my head a little bit too long on that one. Um, another one that I found really odd was that if I was, pu- if I was adding something to the DOM, we often want to add things to the DOM that don't have anything to do with the page because we just want them to put them in cache. And the trouble with that was that sometimes there's, you know, the browser thinks that there's continuous network activity going on because normally what you would do is you would add some image to the DOM and then you would, which would cause it to be downloaded into the cache and then you would remove it from the DOM because, you know, hey, you don't want to pollute the DOM with your, your customer's DOM. You don't want to be adding stuff that they don't count on there. Um, 
And we found, after doing, you know, reading far too many Firefox uh, bug reports and kind of trying to drill into why would it, you know, the, the cursor continually say transferring data and spinning, that we just couldn't do that. It was common, you know, it was common practice for people to remove it, but we found that if we did, if we did remove the the uh, attached element, that it would cause the spinner. So I mean. It's totally trivial stuff, which takes sadly hours to figure out. Right. But those are the those are the idiosyncrasies of getting if you're if you're trying to write jQuery. Yeah. And you need your code to run right across all these browsers. There is a lot of reading and head banging that goes on. I, I, if anything, any what I'm saying should just reinforce that you should be if you're a corporate developer that is trying to build an application. And you believe that you can write just a little JavaScript library that has different functionality in various browsers. Um, I, I I stand here to testify that that is very unlikely, <laughs> very unlikely. Like I, after years of it, um, there is going to be nuances. We have a system that reports about nine hundred, so I guess it's ninety million beacons where I get reports of errors in JavaScript as part of the beacon. And I'm telling you, uh, you bet you don't know how your code runs on PlayStation 3. <laughs> you know, it's just, and that's the real world. Somebody's out there trying to use your website because they have a PlayStation 3 and they're over here. And the PlayStation 3 supports a web browser, by the way. And, you know, how does JavaScript DOM work there? Well, are yeah. cookies available? Right. That's what makes it harder. And that's why standing on the shoulders of giants in that case is useful. And it just depends. Maybe you don't want your code to run on that. But most, you know, most people are trying to create their their web fronts to to just be ubiquitous. They should be wherever you can get to the internet. You can get to my website. That would be the desire, right? Yeah, right. And so that promise, if you're going to fulfill that in a world where using JavaScript is becoming, you know, ever more important, you know, using the libraries and and letting teams of developers like us work on those nuances is is worth it. I guess the question I'm de- I, that hits me is, what was the right answer to the PS3 problem from a developer's point of view? What was the right answer? So the problem was that the cookie, I was trying to use a session cookie, and when I wrote to the session cookie, it failed. And then cause, you know, my code just never anticipated a session cookie failure right there. So really, I probably could have got it in other browsers as well, but it... You know, I, it was just weird. I had not seen that in any other browser. It seems unlikely that by coincidence, I, you know, I didn't, I, you don't have to have cookies enabled to have this work. It was just right. one of the objects I was referencing through an error in PS3 when it had to do with cookies. And, you know, so to me, the right answer was I wanted to be standing on the shoulders of a, of a library where the feature I was using um, whether in this case it was the unload event had fired, which is right. the unload of the previous page, um, well, I would use a library that generated that and let the pre- pre- the people who were dealing with that library have a bug report from the Sony people saying that jQuery doesn't work on the PlayStation because it tries to access the you know the session get <laughs> a cookie you know and where where it's null in their browser. Um, I think that that would, you know, the answer is you don't want to have to be, you know, dealing with all those, those clients. 
you, sure. you have to you have to insulate yourself from that somewhat. How? Yeah, and it, and it obviously it was a failure of jQuery. Somebody hasn't fully tested things on the PS3, although that's a heck of a reason to own a PS3. Right. Just saying, you know. I, I, I don't want to say that there, there was no problem in this case with jQuery. I was just giving that as an example. Okay. Um, as an example that, of something that would solve that or own the problem space. Um, I was trying to code that myself and had learned that the, the problem existed because I was trying to work at the metal. Right. Um, and when I look through jQuery and those libraries, I surely see a lot of not only code comments, but, you know, workarounds to those little types of problems. Right. The browser market is far more diverse than we realize, I think is what you're saying. Yeah, we track, like, I think it's 31, 31 uh, mobile browsers, and they all operate wholly different than, you know, any regular browser. From from what you can put in client cache to how the JavaScript does or doesn't execute, right? Plus, geez, you know, the, even the top browsers, you're still looking at eight. So, so you know, in, in terms of you know, you've got to look at the differences in IE uh, seven, eight, and nine. You know, you got to look at, at now Firefox four is coming into focus, right? Uh, Chrome nine ten is coming out. Chrome has a really good upgrade. Uh, path where most of the time there, you know, most Chrome users, I think it's like ninety-five percent are on the same version, so that's somewhat helpful. Is that is is that Chrome doing that, or is that just the nature of the people who run Chrome? I think they have an update when they have their automatic updates. It's a very forceful system that seems to get everybody to update right away. Yeah, you really don't have a choice. Um, I haven't done it lately, so I can't recall exactly what questions are asked, but I know that. You know, once it, it changes, our beacon system moves to the new version almost immediately. Right. So, and I mean, you, they get wide adoption quite quickly. You've mentioned this beacon system a couple of times. What is that? Um, we, track, we track the performance of our clients, you know, you know using real-world performance beacons, much the way um, uh, Google Analytics tracks hits to your site for the purposes of... Um, um, understanding your site, basically, it's it's Google Analytics that's focused only on performance. Right. There's other uh, open source ones that are similar. Boomerang or uh, Episodes are two open source uh, JavaScript libraries for gathering um, metrics on the performance of your website. We we believe strongly in uh, both synthetic and real world measurements of performance, and we're learning as we gather beacon data that, you know, trying to understand what performance means to uh, real-world customers is really hard. Like, it's, we're having trouble explaining some of the behavior sometimes. We're, we're struggling to get better and better measurements for start render and beacons. But uh, so we are a very data-driven company, and every time if, if our preference is that every page we accelerate, uh, we learn from. And in, and an interesting battle too, because every time you push this envelope, you you basically find new problems. Yeah, yeah, we keep raising the bar, um, but I think that's healthy. Um, so so yeah, we we we're continue. We're, there's no shortage of problems in the area of web performance. That's for sure. Uh, and I think there's a lot of people working on it. The new frontier is moving. From desktop to mobile performance overall, I would mm -hmm. say that it, you know the industry is really transitioning right now. Um, where you know two years ago, how to 
you know, how to get get uh, desktop browsers was really at its peak. And now we're just like I feel like we're in the infancy of uh, getting mobile waterfalls and really starting to accelerate the mobile experience. Yeah, and and it's challenging. It's like another set of browser groups that are are you know we're learning and and adjusting for. And it's back, like it's back, and then like try to get, try to get a waterfall, you know, like a, a look at a web page where you can see all the network traffic and what resources are fetched on a, on a, uh, on an Android. Yeah. Do you know what I'm like? You have to really be set up to do that to to make it happen. Performance, of course, of those things is also a challenge, and just the 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 limited bandwidth. I mean. Your bandwidth is good in the rest of the world. I understand that, but here in the United States, for cell phones, we it really does still kind of suck. Mm. Wireless. I have to say that it it it's you know the the latency that we see in cell phones is compared to desktops is bad everywhere. Yeah, it's a it's a, a whole new challenge. That 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 device, the fact that it also treats caching differently. Yeah. Uh, there's less memory. It's slower. Like the whole idea to me of, you know, consuming big XML files and web services on a phone is, yeah, I mean, you really got to be careful with that. I That's why I'm more interested in sockets communication where, you know, you can really talk about minifying. Right. You can really right. so, be close to the metal. Yeah, and, and as we see um, a Safari 5 come get more full-featured for, you know, for iOS, and, and we see uh, we're getting more MoBeta features in, in Android right now and their browser. I, I really, I, I see that a big part of it is allowing you to use web sockets and, and you know, try to, a different application paradigm for those types of web applications. But it still means taking a different approach to developing for one device uh, you know, versus another, and that, that is a real challenge for our industry. Yes, it is. Because, I mean, we can't, we're struggling to get the bank app right with all the features they want on what we're doing now. Yeah, right. You know, like, what are you going to add, 31 more uh, variants? Yeah, the yeah, testers right. are going to be happy about that. And and is there any way to avoid testing directly on the phone? Can you use emulation? Uh, yeah, there is some emulation. Um, Keynote has some emulation. Gomez has some emulation. Um it's uh, trying to figure out the performance of it is questionable. Like there's, there's two sides to it. It's just, it's, there's one, which is just testing. Does the feature set still work? Right. I haven't been focused on that. So I can't tell you traditionally emulators have not been good at that. No. Um, I use it for a different purpose to figure out whether it's faster and the emulator just has, it's useless because it's not the real environment. And, you know, each, depending on which emulator you're using for, for which uh, mobile device, it's not reliable. I need, I need data from real devices. And that's where our beacon system gathers data from the real devices, but we still, you know, the amount of insight that you have is limited compared to a desktop browser. Well, and I just I, when I think about desktop browsing waterfalls, you you basically the waterfall appears in the browser. Right. That's just F12. not going to work on a mobile phone. That's right. That's right. It, it, that's a big deal, right? Like you're looking if you're a developer and you're looking at your website and in IE and you hit F12, it's like you've got an instant key to what's going on. Like, and that's important. Like the visibility of of that type of stuff leads to the solutions. 
And I would argue that it's like completely blind in mobile devices for the most part. Right. Yeah, Rich, you'd, you'd like it to capture all those markers that you would generate in a waterfall and then feed it to something else so that you can look at it in a reasonable way. Well, you can do that. There was somebody who came out with a, with a PCAP tool that uh, worked in, that, that built um, HAR files, which can be used, you know, HAR files is a standard format, waterfall format that you know, a number of companies use. And we use HTTP Watch to view them. So we have been able, like it's a more um, encumbered process, but we, uh, we have been able to get waterfalls off of an iPhone, for example, that way. Right. So, you know, you wire shark it, you get a PCAP capture, you take the capture and convert it um, to a HAR file and then view the HAR file on your desktop with HTTP Watch. Ken, how many people do you think know what you just yeah, described? Yeah, I don't know what HARify is. But HAR, <laughs> H-A-R, uh, HAR is the, is the data format for HTTP, it's the, the data format for many waterfall-like tools. So it's H-A-R? H-A-R, yes. And we use HTTP Watch to view those files. Uh, the native format of, of HTTP Watch is HWL, but it, it, you know there's, it's compatible. Um, and I can follow up with where the, the PCAP tool is, but there's a if you know if you use Wireshark. Yeah, this is, it's, it, you know, you use a network utility, it's an open source tool, Wireshark, and you, you capture the traffic uh, to, to the uh, cell phone, and then you, the output of that is this capture file that you can convert to a HAR file. Uh, how many people know that? I, all the people, <laughs> geez, everybody, well, who doesn't know that? Yeah. <laughs> You, you are part of the one company that knows this stuff. Oh, no, this was done by, I think this was a guy from Google or somebody. Like, this is, uh, I, I'm the, I don't think it's as special knowledge as you're suggesting, but maybe it is. <laughs> Just thinking about the average listener thing, you know, this, a conversation with you, Kent, often leaves folks with a sense of, wow, I really don't know anything about web performance. <laughs> That's true. Oh, I would just say follow your instincts. Test first. You know, uh, I, I'm 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 sorry. I didn't mean to come across that way. Uh, it's, uh, no, I, no, it's some of it it's is good. really challenging. Like I, it, I spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to accelerate, you know, uh, mobile applications, and I try to put myself like I'm paid only to do that. Like, yeah. and I'm imagining you know somebody who works for a large department store putting that you know that storefront up, you know, and the Owner comes in and says, you know, Android's taken off. I want to make sure people can buy our new stuff on Android. Mm. Like, holy moly. And, you know, and then the report comes in. It's so slow on my Android phone. That, right. And then you're, you're, in, you're in the development department. I can just imagine nobody has an Android phone. You have no way to even see what the guy's talking about. There's no way to look at data. Like, it's, it's, it's as though it's like one shock after the next. So, yeah. I mean, there's some good, there's some fun challenges coming up, I think. Yeah, we certainly didn't mean that as anything but a compliment. <laughs> um. <laughs> I, I, I take it that way, but I, I want to encourage people that, I mean, this is something we all have to deal with, like it or not. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, guys, I think we're out of time. I mean, I'm chatting with my friend here, which I could do all day, yeah. but. I hope I, I shared something of, of use to people. Is there. Is there Anything you want me to follow up with, or 
You should see the list of links I've put in for the show, Kent. <laughs> as you're talking, I'm just making notes as fast as I can because there's just this raft of tools that I think a lot of folks need to know about. So they're all go to the show uh, on the webpage. I've put all the links in for HTTP Watch and the Minifiers and the Beautifiers and Boomerang and Episode, everything you need to find ah. to get you too could be Kent Alstad one day. <laughs> Well, Kent, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to have you on and uh, come back again soon. And thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.